And hello and welcome to this week's edition of Novak Now here on the Nachum Siegel Network. Obviously, we've had more days of incredible news events, major news events, enough that would a lot of case things have gone, been going on in the last few weeks where each individual, individual story could have been in another year the top story of the year. But in 2020, it's... Uh, it's just one of many, but I guess you could say this is now. This happened right before the end of the Jewish year, fifty-seven eighty, just hours before, or maybe even just two hours or one hour before uh, Rosh Hashanah began for the year fifty-seven eighty-one. But of course, we had the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and as we say, Baruch Dayan Haemet. She was a Jewish woman who died. Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg of the, of the United States Supreme Court passing away many of us either found out after maybe the morning of of the first day of rosh hashanah if we got a newspaper and we saw it in the newspaper some of us found out during our rosh hashanah dinners uh, maybe someone came in and told us and first and foremost of course this is a, a passing of a of a jewish life a jewish woman who who led <laughs> by american standards uh, you know, certainly an overt Jewish life. Um, she married a Jewish man. She raised her children as Jews. We know that she was not particularly observant. She was not greatly educated in her Jewish heritage. She was not uneducated in her Jewish educa- heritage. I think, by again, by American Jewish standards, she was probably, and you can say whether this is a sad fact or not, she was probably in the top 50% or maybe even 40% of American Jews knowing about their heritage and knowing uh, and, and having some semblance of respect for their Jewish traditions. Um, you know, obviously she was not someone who was living a, a, a observant Jewish life in a, in a modern Orthodox or even traditional conservative Jewish home in the old days when we would consider the, the old version of conservative Judaism, that kind of thing. But she was a proud Jew, which is something in, t- in today's world. Not uh, a lot of Jews, not as many Jews as there, as there should be in the United States are well enough informed about their Judaism to be very proud of it. She was proud of a number of the traditions, and she certainly knew about a, a decent number of them. And to her credit, she was never someone who walked around and told people that she knew that she was very, very educated Jewishly. I mean, every rabbi, and she did meet with a number of rabbis over the years, public officials, even if you're not Jewish in this country, you're going to end up meeting certain rabbis. That's the way public relations goes these days. But uh, I've met a number of rabbis, very orthodox rabbis, who met with her over the years, and she was very, um, she would be very, talked to them about how proud she was of her Jewish heritage, but she was also humble in, in, in the sense that she would always make it clear to them that she did not have a strong formal Jewish education. She wasn't a yeshiva student. She didn't know Hebrew. Uh, I think she could read Hebrew, but um, she she certainly didn't speak the language, and she never passed herself off as someone who did. Um, so that's the first and foremost thing. Obviously, this is a prominent American Jew, and more proof of something that I've known since a very young age, maybe because I grew up in smaller Jewish communities, um, in different parts of the country than the major Jewish population centers. I did not, most of my childhood was not in New York or Chicago or Los Angeles or any, or Miami or any of these major Jewish communities. Um, but something that I've always known is, is that in this country, uh, Jewish Americans have 
a tremendous uh, amount of opportunity before us. I, I really don't know if there's any measurable amount of success that is excluded from us because of bigotry or anything else like that. It doesn't mean that there isn't anti-Semitism anywhere that you could possibly go in this country. There certainly are going to be anti-Semites in some place, some part of every, every place you go. But I don't think it's a major factor in this country. I never have. Um, 100 years ago, maybe even 90 years ago, sure, much more than, than today. But it's not something that stops anyone, and, and she's a, a, a great example of that. She did not have any disadvantages because she was a Jew, a, a Jew that, that she was unable to overcome. So, you know, again, I, th- I think that there's, there's a moment we should all take to, to just celebrate that fact. And this is coming from somebody, in my, in my case, who didn't agree with most of her decisions as a justice on the United States Supreme Court, but... First and foremost, I want to acknowledge the passing of a Jewish woman, a proud Jewish woman, and someone whose life and career, even though she often stood for things that I don't agree with, her life and career do stand for something, which is something that I'm very proud of and I do agree with, in that America is a very, has been and continues to be a very, very welcoming place for American Jews. And that's uh, for Jews, for Jewish people. So that's a, that's a great that's a great thing to kind of start with. But... Once we get past her passing and we talk about how people are responding to it in a both politically, both the politicians responding to it, which I'll talk about first, and later I'll talk about how individuals, non-politicians are, are responding to it. And in both cases, we're dealing with something that may be the, the number one avera, the number one sin that we really need to focus on. I wonder if every Yom Kippur and every 10, you know, the 10 days of repentance, which we're in now, I wonder if every year we should take a pause and maybe focus on one particular sin, one particular transgression that is so common, that is so pervasive, that whereas we have to do the all the, you know, for those of you who know the Yom Kippur service, where communally every person in the synagogue stands up and we do what's called the Vial Chet, where we all talk about, I mean, almost every kind of possible sin under the sun. But I wonder if, if maybe in particular years we should focus on one kind of sin in particular, not that we don't talk about all the others. Obviously, I'm not saying we should change the, the Siddur, the prayer book, or our, or our prayers. I'm not saying that. But maybe there's one sin that we should think about a little bit more this year and every year, depending on what that sin is, when you think about how the news shakes out. And I think that hypocrisy, which I guess could be considered a lie of some kind. I don't know which one of the Vial uh, Chet on that list of all of our sins that we say during the services, hypocrisy comes into it. But hypocrisy really is something that seems so very pervasive in our society right now, probably every society, but certainly American society, American Jewish community, American in Israel. I think that hypocrisy is really, unfortunately, spiking spiking much more than any virus or any illness. So first I'll talk about the politicians. There's just a very obvious, obviously hypocritical thing going on on both sides from both the Democrats and the Republicans in response to the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Now, if you remember in 2016, Justice Antonin Scalia died. Now, he was, if, 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 if Ruth Bader Ginsburg was the 
bulwark or the bulwark or the or the 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 real leader of the left wing ideological movement in the courts or the hero of that and she many to many people she was then Antonin Scalia was that for conservatives and right wing Americans now unlike Justice Ginsburg who had been in failing health for many years Justice Scalia's death was a complete surprise he died early in 2016 now at the time Barack Obama was still president and constitutionally he had every right to nominate his replacement which he did a judge named Merrick Garland, who coincidentally is also a Jewish American. But unlike the situation we have now, the United States Senate was not controlled by the president of the Times Party. The, the Republicans, as they do now, controlled the United States Senate as they did because of the result of the 2014 midterm elections when the Republicans took control of the Senate. They had already taken control of the House four years earlier. So because the Senate was being was in control was controlled by the Republicans, the Senate majority leader at the time, and he's still the Senate majority leader, Mitch McConnell, decided to block the nomination. He would not bring President Obama's nominee nomination of Merrick Garland to the floor of the Senate. And Mitch McConnell's justification for that, his argument for that, was well, the president and the Senate are the White House and the Senate are controlled by two separate parties. The president at the time was a Democrat. The Senate was controlled and is still controlled by Republicans. And because of that, he said, Mitch McConnell said, whether you agree with this logic or not, <laughs> Mitch McConnell said that he did not think it was right to bring the president's nomination to the floor of the Senate. And this, of course, was a huge controversy. It sparked tremendous outrage from Democrats. It sparked many, many comments from many people saying that this was wrong that the, the, the vote should have gone to the Senate floor, that this was an unfair attack on the presidency. President Obama still had a year of his presidency left, or I guess nine months. And by the way, some of the people who, one of the people who were making that argument very strongly was Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who said that it was really irresponsible to have only eight of the nine justices serving on the court, in, a, in, in, a, in a, any year at any long time, any long period of time. And of course, there were so many other Democrats, including Joe Biden at the time, who was vice president, who said that not only should presidents make these nominations in election years, but the, they should absolutely do, do whatever they can to get a justice onto the Supreme Court. So that was four years ago, a little bit more than that, four and a half years ago. And now we have a situation now where the the... The, the, the tables have turned. Everything is the same except for one thing, and I'll say what that is in one, one, in one second. We are now back to a, an election year, 2020. A Supreme Court justice has passed away in Justice Ginsburg. And President Trump, like President Obama, is about to name his nominee to fill that vacancy. And the Senate Democrats, like the Senate Republicans in 2014, in 2016, I should say, are saying, no, this vote, this nomination shouldn't go forward. There shouldn't be any vote on the floor because we're so close to an election. This is an election year and we shouldn't do it. So we've had a complete reversal. The only difference is in this case, and this, and, and I don't think that this absolves Republicans from, from completely from the hypocrisy uh, question. Uh, the only difference is that in this case in 2020, both the White House and the Senate are 
controlled, for a lack of a better word, but you have a, pre- a Republican president and a Republican-controlled Senate, whereas it was a split, split, sit- split situation in 2016. So a lot of people are saying Mitch McConnell is not being a hypocrite by saying that he will do whatever he can to bring President Trump's nomination to the floor of the Senate this time, even though it's also an election year. It's even closer to an election day, obviously a lot closer to election day than it was in the Merrick Garland situation. They're saying, well, Mitch McConnell isn't being a hypocrite because even though he blocked this scenario in 2016, in that case, Mitch McConnell's uh, reasoning was, well, the Senate is controlled by the Republicans, the White House is controlled by Democrats. I don't know why that necessarily is the justification for not bringing up Merrick Garland's nomination to the floor, but I am simply acknowledging the fact that Mitch McConnell says that that was a different scenario. Okay. I still think we have a lot of hypocrisy on both sides. You have Democrats who were vehement, vehemently saying, including Joe Biden at the time, vehemently saying that it was a terrible sin that the Senate and McConnell weren't bringing up the nomination to the floor of Merrick Garland and how terrible it was that President Obama's nominee wasn't getting a chance to be confirmed. And you had Republicans saying, no, 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 you can't do that in an election year. You can't, you can't, you can't. And now you have, of course, complete reversals. Everyone is just completely reversing their positions. Tons of Republicans now saying, no, 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 we got to get this nomination in as soon as possible, election year or not. And you have Democrats saying, no, 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 you have to wait until after the election. You have to wait until the inauguration whether of a new president in January of 2021 or uh, for a second term for Donald Trump. So we have a very simple case of hypocrisy. And if you, those of you who have read my work online, whether you follow me on Twitter, which I urge you to do, at JakeJakeNY, which is my Twitter feed, you'll know that my take on hypocrisy in politics is, I think, a very justified approach, which I take, which is that Politics and hypocrisy are synonymous. It's not just that politicians are often hypocrites or that politics has a lot of hypocrisy connected to it. By definition, if you are going to be a politician in a democratic society, in a society that has elections, or in our case, a a democratic republic, you have to be a hypocrite. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, in this country, we have political parties. And you're going to have members of your party who are going to be guilty, even if it's just a few of them, who will be guilty of the things that you're accusing your opponents of doing. That's the best case scenario. Very often, the real case scenario, the real case is that the politicians themselves are guilty of what they accuse the other folks of doing. But let's just say you have a really, really virtuous politician in America who never accuses his opponents of things that he personally or she personally is guilty of. I don't know if there's been a politician like that in our history, certainly not our recent history, but let's just say there was, that, you know, we did have somebody like that. There's still going to be very likely a hypocrite by definition because there will be somebody in his or her party who will be guilty of those things. It's almost impossible to think of any scenario where that isn't true. So you are either a hypocrite by yourself, which is very often the case, or a hypocrite by the association or the fact that you've joined a party where there are going to be some members who are guilty of what you're accusing the other side of. We saw this in a lot of cases, but let's just take the Me Too sexual harassment and sexual assault type controversies that have been 
that were top of mind, I would say, it's been, it's been three years, if you can believe it, since that was really a major number one story in this country, comes back here and there you know, it's from time to time. But there was a period in 2017 where every week there was just another big name coming out. And there were a lot of people on the left, a lot of people from the Democratic Party who were being found to be guilty or accused of these kinds of this kind of misconduct. And there were a lot of people from the right and from the Republican Party, whether they were politicians or not, who were being accused of this kind of conduct. And both sides used to act with similar outrage every time one of these stories came out on, about somebody else from, from the other side. And, and, and this just went on and on and on in an almost comic way. It was so hypocritical. And that's just one example. So my point is, if politics doesn't appear to be hypocritical in your mind, if you're seeing something that a politician is saying or pontificating about, it's okay for you to agree with him or her. I'm not saying you don't have to agree with a position or a statement that a politician makes or a policy. But you should know that it's just impossible <laughs> by definition for them for the for whatever policy that is not to be hypocritical in some way. Now you can do something that's hypocritical that's still the right thing to do. You might, for example, have stolen money from somebody in the past, but then work to return stolen money that somebody else stole to somebody else. That still that doesn't make it wrong that you did the second thing, that you helped somebody out who had, had money stolen. But if you stand on your high horse and saying we must return all stolen money to, to victims and you haven't done that to, for the money that you stole, then obviously that's hypocritical. It doesn't mean that what you're doing is wrong at the present moment if what you're doing is rectifying a situation where someone else has been robbed. So that's kind of – I mean I think I just you know, summarized American politics there in a nutshell. Almost everything that every politician pushes for is something that – could be good, could be bad, but it's very likely to have been a, be a hypocritical position based on something they've done in the past, or maybe will do in the future. That's just the way it goes. My point is, if you see something that a politician is doing and you don't see the hypocrisy in it, then you're probably not looking closely enough. One of the things that really boggles my mind more than anything else is not when people say I support a candidate or I don't support another candidate. It's when they come at when when educated. Adults, people with families and children. I'm not talking about young people here. I'm talking about people who are, have had experience in life, have had good education. Some of them, a lot of them are successful in business or successful in their careers. And they talk to you as if one politician is really, really clean and good and another is really, really bad and it's an open and shut case. I mean, there are people that will come and tell me that, yeah, Trump lies all the time and Biden doesn't. Or Biden lies all the time and Trump doesn't. Or the Republicans are, are, you know, really, really great and the Democrats are always wrong. And, or the Democrats are really, really great and the Republicans are always wrong. And only one, I mean, it's just amazing to me that someone could be so two-dimensional in their thinking. Anybody who thinks that way about American politics is either really, really not dealing with the full deck or they don't know enough about American politics. They just don't know their facts and they're not really worth engaging too much. I mean, they really need to go back and hit the books first. It's kind of like when you talk to someone about things that you find in our halacha and our Jewish tradition, and they'll come to you and they'll say like, well, don't you have this one rule? And it's like, it's like the one rule that they've learned. It's sort of a takeoff on the famous story about Hillel and Shammai 
And, you know, Hillel teaches the Roman soldier that, you know, basically a version of love your neighbor as love yourself. Of course, the exact quote is what is hateful to you, don't do to somebody else. The rest is commentary. Now that you can say to a Roman soldier if you have to do it in one second. But that Roman soldier is not someone that Hillel would say is now an expert on Jewish law and tradition. Whereas, of course, Shammai kicks the Roman soldier out and says, oh, you have to study for years before you can really learn before I can teach you, you know, the Torah. I can't teach you the Torah literally standing on one foot, in other, in other words, in, in one second. That's the famous story that we learn about the different approaches that Hillel and Shammai took to really teaching people. But it's not a question of conferring upon them any kind of expertise. I don't think that anyone can really understand American politics based on one position that one, one person said without having some point taking a look back at their history and at, and at their, their records. It's two-dimensional thinking that drives me crazy. Now, I'm, you know, listen, I'll be very honest with you. I'll be very open with you. I'm mostly a conservative, sometimes a little bit libertarian when it comes to American politics. But I hold no illusions about any, the Republican Party being producing better people in government. I really don't know if that's true. And I certainly don't think that any elected member of our government isn't basically conducting a lot of hypocritical acts very often. That's just the way it goes for politics. I know that sounds very cynical, but again, I don't think it's cynical to the point of paralysis. When I, ha- when I hear a hypocritical politician, which is, of course, redundant, when I hear a politician proposing a policy, I look at, A, whether that policy is something that I agree with and think, and I think it might work, and B, I look very hard at whether that policy is something that can be really enacted. You know, sometimes even the best idea can't actually be put into place. And C, I look at myself, I look at that person, is this someone who's actually going to enact it? Even if it is, even if it is possible, will this person do that thing? And I try to look at all those things. I think that's a really healthy way to look at American politics. You can have someone come in and say, I'm going to tax rich people to the point where it's so that everyone gets more money, that poor people get more money. Well, that's not the way it works. We've learned that if you tax the rich more, the money doesn't trickle down to the poor. So that's a policy. I don't care who's saying it. I don't care if it's a rich person. I don't care if it's someone who's been more hypocritical than other politicians. It's just not a policy I'm going to like. But I'm certainly not going to support or not support a policy based on the politician himself or herself and how they've conducted themselves personally on certain things. I, 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 it won't be the only reason. If you do that, you'll never be able to support any policy. It's a factor. It's one of the things that I would look at. But again, the most important thing is, is this a policy you agree with? Is this a policy that's possible to enact? And is this a policy that will be enacted by this person or this person actually has the opportunity or a chance to get it done? Those are the three things, the three things you should look at. I wish we could do more character analysis in politics. I wish we could do all those things. But hypocrisy is so pervasive in politics that it would just be kind of a waste of time. Let's just focus on what they're doing. And to some extent, you can talk about, look about what the things that they have said, but actions speak louder than words, even in politics. So, folks, there's just been a tremendous amount of hypocrisy on both sides when it comes to this Ruth Bader Ginsburg thing when I talk about the politicians.
But let's talk about you and me just for the last few minutes of Novak now here on the Nachum Siegel Network. Let's just talk about you and me and people like you and me who are not elected officials, who post on social media or talk with one another. And again, in the spirit of Yom Kippur and in the 10 days of repentance, let's ask ourselves, are we not any less hypocritical? Are we, are we just as hypocritical as the politicians? Have we posted things on Facebook or Twitter or talked to our friends and said things that are the opposite of what we said four years ago when the, scenario, when the, when, when the tables were turned? I thought, as I recall pretty clearly, I thought that Mitch McConnell was doing a bit of a power play. I had written stuff critical of Mitch McConnell as Senate Majority Leader in the years leading up to 2016. I didn't like the way that he was handling budget negotiations with the Democrats, things like that. So admittedly, I wasn't his biggest fan. And I'm still not his biggest fan, although I think he has done good work in getting good conservative justices confirmed to the federal courts and, of course, the Supreme Court as well. But I remember thinking that he was doing a big power play here and that he had a right to try to do it. And he succeeded. I didn't make it about Merrick Garland personally because I don't know him personally and I'm very dubious of judging a judge's character going into the going into the bench because as many of us have learned over the years, a judge who has a very conservative background can very often get onto the court and flip and make some liberal decisions. It's very rare when the opposite occurs, by the way. I can't think of any liberal justice in the last 50 years who was known as a liberal justice before he or she got on the Supreme Court and then delivered any kind of significant decision that wasn't a liberal decision after that. I'm sure that there may be one or two examples that the legal experts listening to this can bring up to me, but I think everyone would agree that liberal justices have kept in line much more once they hit the Supreme Court than conservative justices. Of course, John Roberts being a, the biggest example in recent years, the chief justice of the Supreme Court, known for his conservative record going into his years on the court, has delivered quite a few decisions or voted on, on the side in a number, a number of cases of, of the, the left or, the, or the, the more liberal wing of the court. And that's an issue for another discussion. But the point is, there's a little bit more orthodoxy on the liberal side. It sounds like an oxymoron, but the liberal justices have been much more orthodox in their observance of their liberal, uh, li- liberal stance on things, even as they go through many long careers in the Supreme Court. But I ask you, have you changed your position on this from four years ago? Were you saying four years ago that it's terrible that the Senate is blocking the president's nomination? And are you now saying it's it's terrible that the president that president trump has made a nomination and and the senate is going along with it or vice versa did you say four years ago that the senate had every right to wait to not to to hold a vote on the on president obama's nominee and it's not right to do it in an election year and are you now saying the opposite are you saying oh well uh the president made the nomination the senate should vote on it and they should do it right away and is your only kind of excuse for not being a hypocrite there is, well, they're the same party now, which I don't think was part of your argument. Now, that, now if that were part of your argument, if four years ago you were putting on Facebook or Twitter or telling your friends, hey, the, the only reason why I'm against, or the, a big reason why I'm against Obama's nomination here is because the Senate is controlled by a different party, then I guess you might be able to excuse yourself somewhat. But let's be honest. I think most of us were not thinking of it that way. 
Hypocrisy is a big sin. It's what defines politics. I don't know if we can solve it for politics unless we get rid of political parties and collective records and things like that, like I spoke about earlier in this program. But for you and me, we're not really members of political parties, even if we register as a Democrat or a Republican. We're not really members of a political party. For you and me, our hypocrisy is something that we can work on. We have a chance to fix it. And maybe as we approach Yom Kippur, this whole Ruth Bader Ginsburg versus Merrick Garland scenarios, which are so similar, is a chance for us all to look at whether we've been even more hypocritical than we should be, should be, and what we can do about it. Can we finally say, let's let the law decide? The law is that the president can make this nomination and the Senate can confirm it, and that's what the law is. And if you want to change it in the future, work on that. And maybe that's really the best thing to do for all of us right now. I'm Jake Novak. This has been Novak Now on the Nachum Siegel Network. Gamar Chatimah